going to actually study from the sources and in doing so, hopefully, hopefully, hopefully be able to really properly understand where things are coming from. That's the goal. That is, a, it's as simple and as complicated as that. Okay. So we're going to go from the sources and then we're going to walk away every time that we have one of these classes with some practical applications. It's going to take a lot longer to get through practical applications because we're going to develop each point as opposed to just rattling off a bunch of practical points. Okay. Uh, the text you have in front of you, the source sheets you should have in front of you, again, they're on the Bima. They're all in Hebrew and Aramaic. Don't fret. Uh, for those of you who don't speak Hebrew and Aramaic, uh, two possibilities over here. One, I, 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 am, I was hoping, I was thinking, not hoping, but I was thinking that some might appreciate doing this uh, from the original text, seeing actually a copy from the original text, and in doing so, really getting as, bu- as much as possible of that learning experience. And so that's why we have the Hebrew text in front of us. Um, if, I, I'm, please feel free to follow up after the class by email in person. Uh, if this didn't work for you, I'll be translating everything. But if this didn't work for you and you want there to be English on the side, I could, uh, you know, we could, we could have an English text translation next to you. Uh, I, I will personally say that, you know, uh, part of, you know, thinking back to as a young child, reading text, which I couldn't understand a word, but hearing someone else share those words and scribbling in the translations or whatever it is, it's part of the learning experience. So that's where I'm coming from. See, let's, let's give it a shot today. See how it works. If it doesn't work, let me know. And we'll, we'll, you know, we'll revisit this in the future. Okay. So there isn't an English version book. This is, so let's, let's talk about what we, where this, uh, where these sources come from. These sources are actually, um, there is a program that we started a few months ago in the Shul, it's a program that is taking place in many communities, something called Smichas Chaver. It is a program for men only. It was the first class we've ever had in our, in our Shul that was for men only. I got some pushback saying, hey, we want an in-depth text-based class. Um, so it's, it's a class with uh, which we're going through these topics, the topics that we're going through right now, uh, that, that's specifically for men. I'm taking the sources from them. Because I'm not following, because it's not part of their program, I'm taking the liberty of skipping some sources which I don't think are necessary. So that's where these sources are coming from. So giving credits where credit is due. One of the benefits of that is that I feel like as a show now, we are, there are so many people all studying the same topics, which I think is kind of nice. Uh, there's something very special about the fact that there are so many people all studying the same topics. I don't know. It creates a bit of a, you know, similar to you have Daf Yomi where there are so many people studying the same Gemaras. Here we are, we're all studying the same topics and hopefully that will create and engender a little bit, you know, when you're talking a Kiddush, you don't only, only have to catch up about, you know, how it worked this was this past week, but you could talk about as we're going to study Lecha Mishnah. You know, you'll have uh, nice discussions around these topics. I hope it's, it's meaningful in that fashion. Okay. So let's talk about what we're going to be studying today. Again, the source sheet, there are source sheets on the Bima. So please feel free to grab one. Uh, we're just about to jump in. Um, so let's talk about what we're studying over the next few weeks. And that is something called Lechem Mishnah. Lechem Mishnah literally means double bread. Okay. Double bread is the idea that on Shabbos, when we go ahead and make hamotzi, we have two chalas in front of us. We're going to discuss where that comes from. We're going to discuss uh, the question of whether this is just a minhag. Is this a custom? Is this a law? Is it a biblical law or is it a rabbinic law? All that seems academic, but it actually has practical ramifications as to how we categorize this law. And whether it's just a custom, whether it's biblically mandated, or whether it's rabbinically mandated, as we'll see, there are practical ramifications. Another question, which we'll of course discuss in this context, is we know that there are different laws that pertain to, sometimes laws pertain to both men and women. Sometimes laws pertain to men alone and not women, right? So we're going to have to analyze that. And certainly in this context, in this room, in this setting, uh, what the obligation, is there an obligation? And what is the nature of that obligation? 
for women as well. Um, a question that probably is the most recurring question in the context of challah, at least for me, is the question of, what if you're celiac or simply cannot have challah, right? That question comes up more and more uh, for whatever, you know, and, and so the question is, what do you do about lechem mishnah in such a case? What do you do about eating bread in general in such a case? Um, we also know that there's this idea of having two whole loaves, the loaves being complete, Question is to, to what extent, how whole, and of course, hopefully, hopefully we'll get to today, a question of the pull-apart challah. Rosendorf uh, pull-apart challah is kind of ubiquitous in Baltimore, and so the question is, can I go ahead, buy one nice pull-apart challah, and then just split it apart and say, hey, I now have two rolls, or actually have, I don't know, like seven or eight rolls, um, right? And because of the fact that ultimately these rolls break apart, um, does that count? Can I consider that one? Can I consider that eight or two? Those are some of the things that we'll hopefully tackle today. Ready? Okay, let's do it. Again, source sheets are... Are there any source sheets left on the Bima? Yeah, fantastic. Okay, let's jump in. Um, can you all hear me back there? Yeah? Okay, fantastic. Okay, here we go. So again, the sources today, just to re- reiterate, the sources today are in Hebrew, Aramaic. Uh, please feel... And my goal is to translate. I want to really give us the... as uh, as. Uh, classical of, a, of an experience as possible, but if people feel that there is a need for English translation on the side, I will be happy to do so, so please give me some feedback. Let's begin with a Pasuk in the Torah, source number one. The context of this verse is the Jewish people, after having left Egypt, they're traveling in the desert, and there is a shortage of food. They only brought a certain amount of matzah. They are traveling in a desert with a tremendous amount of people with very uh, minimal means of, of carrying things, and so they run out of food, and they complain to Moshe, and of course, Moshe turns to God, and what is the response? One of the responses is the man. Okay, so we have this magical, supernatural food that's falling from the heaven, from the heavens, and on a daily basis, the Torah tells us that they would receive the portion of an omer. What is an omer? So we're familiar with Sfirasa omer. An omer is actually just a measurement. An omer is, the measurement of an omer is approximately the volume of approximately 42 or 43 eggs. Okay, the volume of whatever that is and translate to whatever you'd like. But basically, they would get a daily portion of man in that volume that fell down. One omer a day per person, regardless of if, whether you're on a diet, not on a diet, that's what you received. One omer a day. Now, what happened is that Moshe, for reasons beyond our discussion right now, forgot to tell the Jewish people that come the end of the week, things are going to be a little different. At the end of the week, they are not going to receive one omer, but rather on Friday, they're going to receive two omers, a double portion. Okay, now Moshe doesn't tell them, but this verse over here, this pasuk over here describes a little bit of the surprise the Jewish people experience when they wake up and instead of the regular 43 eggs, they see a double portion, they see 86 egg volumes, a much larger portion that falls down. That's what the pasuk over here is describing, but let's read the pasuk carefully and we'll listen for the nuances of the text because our sages, Chazal, are going to go ahead and do the same thing and they, as they always do, are going to be listening with very finely tuned ears. And listening out for any nuances or any repetitions or anything that doesn't belong in that verse, they'll perhaps lead them to believe that there is more that's supposed to be going on, that more that this Pasuk is actually teaching us. Okay? So let's see that Pasuk together, verse, uh, source number one. Vahi bayom hashishi, and it was on the sixth day, laktu, they gathered, lechem mishneh. Okay? What does that word mean? From the word sheni or shnei. Double bread. They collected double bread. The implication meaning that whatever their regular daily bread was, this was double. And then the Torah says, Shnei omer la'echad. Two omers, two omer uh, portions per each person. 
Okay, then the end of the verse, which we're not going to focus on, the leaders of the Jewish people go ahead and inform Moshe, hey, something strange is going on, we're getting this double portion. We'll hold off on that, that's not really our context. What is strange, what is extraneous in this verse, in this Pasuk? Yes, Lisa? Yeah, we know how to do math, right? So again, I, we were, this is, if we were studying this passage and the Pasuk before told us that on a daily uh, basis, they would receive one Omer and then the Pasuk says, they gathered a double portion, double bread. How much is that? Two, right? One times two is two. We don't need the Torah to tell us, by the way, that's Shneha Omer Lecha. That means two Omers for each person. That seems to be a little bit extraneous, okay? So there's something going on in this Pasuk which tips us off that there's something more being taught. The fact that it says each person received double portion, which is two omers. Anyone who was reading the context who knows that regularly is one omer doesn't need the Torah to spell out that on a de- double portion is two omers. We would know that on our own. Everyone agree with that? Fair. Okay, so this is classic, um, uh, a classic scenario where Chazal or sages are going to, again, be listening closely to the, to the verse, to the Pasuk, and say there must be something else going on over here. And they're going to learn from here. We're not going to get in, in, in just a second into seeing how they extrapolated it from this verse, but we're going to jump to a Gemara, and then we're going to kind of go backwards, but we're going to jump to a Gemara which describes the custom of Lechem Mishnah, the custom of the double bread, which, again, we, t- we do at our homes, we're going to get into much more detail. So let's, let's go to source number two, and then we're going we're gonna to go back to that Pasuk in a moment. But let's first begin by going to source number two. This is from the Gemara in Shabbos. Again, everyone's so polite and quiet over here. Feel free to interrupt or interject with any questions. We'll call it off in comments. Uh, but if you have any questions, clarification, or any thoughts, pushback, please, please feel free to do so. We're, we're specifically learning in this room. This is our, our base medrash. This is a place of, of study. It should be loud. Uh, we're not studying there. It's not a lecture. So uh, let's, let's uh, if anyone has any questions, any thoughts, I'm actually going to move myself more centered over here, considering that. There we go. Okay. So let's begin. We're going to continue. Let's continue. We're going to go into the Gemara. In Shabbos, says the Gemara like this. This is the Gemara. The Gemara is the larger words in source number two. The smaller words in, on the left of, the, of source number two are as a snippet of Rashi. Okay, and therefore you see it's in Rashi script. Okay, so let's begin again. Source number two, first with the Gemara itself. hashishi, And it was on the sixth day. Okay, this is a Pasuk in the Torah. And they prepared whatever was brought to them, okay? Or whatever they, whatever they brought in. So the Pasuk over here is describing the preparation on Friday for Shabbos, but essentially it's a Pasuk that's talking about the man that fell and the double portion that fell on the sixth day. Amar Rav Abba, so Rav Abba, who is an Amora, he is one of, the, one of the many people who are quoted in the Gemara, says, Bishabbos on Shabbos, a person must be botseya. We have, I'm not going to translate that word just yet. But chayav adam, a person is obligated, livtsoa, to be botseya, al kikaros, on two loaves of bread. Okay, so there's something about two loaves of bread. Dichsiv lechem mishnah. Because the Pasuk says a double bread. Okay, so there's some obligation that revolves around a double bread. What does the word botseya mean? Okay, it's an Aramaic word. This is a bit of a challenging question. Anyone? To cut. Okay, good. Excellent. So Chana's pointing out, botseya typically, typically means to cut. And there are some who read this Gemara to mean that on Shabbos you are obligated to cut two loaves of bread. I don't ever see people do that, like deliberate, not just, I, I have a lot of guests, I'm going to cut two loaves of bread. But some people have the custom, this is brought down by the Rashba, this is his translation of the Gemara. He says 
that there's an obligation to take, make the bracha on both loaves of bread and then stack them and then cut them through all the way through. People have seen this? Okay. And as a, as, right? And, uh, sorry? It says all. We, uh, we saw all, which means to cut on two loaves of bread, which is not the same thing as cutting two loaves of bread. Good. So they actually interpret, so good. There is some, some, some nuance here. The, the, the way the Rashba actually says it is to take one piece of bread, put it on top of the other piece of bread, and cut them both together, which I think would address the al. But yes, excellent, excellent point. And that may be where Rashi, which we'll read in a moment, is coming from when he has a different interpretation. But there are some, again, this is not, I, don't, I wouldn't call it the normative practice, I believe. Anyone here Chabad? Uh, anyone here Lubavitch? No? Okay, I believe, I believe, I believe that, that this is normative practice in Chabad, but I could be wrong. But some people have the custom where they take both loaves of bread, hold them, stack them one on top of the other, and cut them through. And it's based on these words, Chayav Adam Livtsoa Al Shteki Karot. A person must cut on two pieces of bread. Again, to Shelley's point, it's not perfect, but the idea of stacking them, cutting them through. That is one way of understanding this Gemara. However, Rashi, we'll just now jump quickly. You see the Rashi's commentary again in the, uh, right under the bold words, the larger words in, in the Rashi script. Livtsoa, Rashi over here translates Livtsoa irregularly. He doesn't translate it in the normal fashion. He says, Livtsoa meaning birkas hamotzi. He says, it doesn't mean that a person must cut two loaves of bread. He stretches the translation, okay? And he says a person is obligated to make the blessing al shteki karot. A person must make the bracha on the two loaves of bread, okay? Meaning, meaning what, what seems to be being described over here, which is, I would say, the normative practice, is that when a person makes the bracha on bread on, fr- on Friday night and Shabbos day, and maybe Shalosh Shodis, a person is obligated to make the bracha over two loaves of bread, Right? Which is our obligation. Nothing about cutting it. You could cut only one of them. That seems to be, that, that's how Rashi interprets this Gemara. That again, and this is learned from the Pasuk of Lechem Mishnah, right? The Pasuk said, Dechsiv Lechem Mishnah. Double bread teaches us that when we make the bracha, when we make the blessing in the beginning of the meal, it must be done on two loaves of bread. Okay? So what we learned so far from this Gemara, at least according to Rashi, which is the normative practice, is that the Pasuk we just read earlier, source number one, which talked about, it had an extraneous terminology. The fact that it said, Shnei Omer, two Omer portions, and it said, Lechem Mishnah, double bread, is teaching us something extra that is not necessarily relevant to the narrative of the falling of the man, and rather it's teaching us an obligation that when we make Hamotzi on Friday night and Shabbos day, or over Shabbos, we are obligated to make hamotzi over two loaves of bread. And clearly, in some way, it is meant to remind us of the double man that fell prior to Shabbos in the desert. Any questions? We're good? Okay, let's continue that Gemara. One more line from that Gemara we're going to read. So we're now on the last two words on the second line of that Gemara. Amar Rav Ashi. Rav Ashi says, and here he shares a story. In, in the Gemara, it's important to note that whenever we find a story after an opinion, the story really, from a halachic perspective, the story solidifies the halacha. In other words, the Gemara seems to be for, for you know, the Gemara, I'll tell you, you know, it, it is, could, could be seen as a very confusing book. It is known, people, it was, it's very, it's, it, it is and it isn't. Actually, there are patterns. It wouldn't be, it's not written in the way that you and I typically would write a book, okay? But it's written in a very, very deliberate fashion. And there are some very clear patterns that, are, that, are, that were created in order to demonstrate what the authors were trying to convey, okay? So one of many principles we'll be touching upon as we, go through, uh, as we go through these sources is that in the Gemara, whenever you have some discussion and then you have a story that follows it, 
it is usually meant to reinforce and therefore almost paskin rule that this is the way we're supposed to be, this is what we're supposed to be following. Further, okay, that's one principle I want you to hold on to. Further, who is Ravashi? Okay, Ravashi is part of the Amorim, okay? So there are the Tanayim. They're living in the first few hundred years of the common era. And then from, you know, 500 or so, uh, 300 or so and on, you have what is known as the Amorim. They are the people who are found in the Gemara. Ravashi is one of the last of the Amorim, and he is credited with really organizing much of the Gemara. There may have been some people who came after him to, who did a little bit more work, but Ravashi classically, traditionally, is considered the final of the final organizers, the final editors of the Gemara. And because of that, because of his, 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 uh, his role as editor, and because of the fact that he came at the end of all these opinions, and therefore had a chance to listen and analyze to all the previous opinions that come before him, Rav Ashi typically is the individual who we follow. In other words, if you have a debate in the Gemara between Rav Ashi and Rav Ami, Rav Asi, whatever, fill in the blanks of other rabbi, Rav Ashi usually will be the one who we rule like because of his place. He is the main editor of the Gemara and he is at the end and therefore we follow his ruling. So let's see what Rav Ashi says. Amr Rav Ashi, now we're at the third line of the Gemara, again, source two. Chazina Leila Rav Kahana. He relates that he saw Rav Kahana, one of his teachers. Dinakat Tarti. He held onto two. Ubat Zachada. And he cut, here he, here all, everyone translates Batza means to one. And he cut one of them. So he held two, and he cut one. Amar laktu ksiv, because the pasuk, the verse that spoke about lecha mishnah, says laktu lecha mishnah. What does the word laktu mean? To gather. So they gathered lecha mishnah. They gathered the double bread. It doesn't say anything about eating the double bread. It says they gathered the double bread. And therefore, we learn from there that we, that, then that's what, what led Rav Kahana to go ahead and hold the two breads from the word laktu lecha mishnah. They gather the double bread, but he wouldn't necessarily eat from both of them. He only cut one of them. Again, this would seem to be normative practice. By the way, though, it's important to note, not everyone does this. We should do this, as we'll see in more detail soon. And that is when we make the bracha of hamotzi, it's important, based on this Gemara, to actually hold both breads. Some people will say, well, there's the bread in front of me. And sometimes you'll be at like some simcha and there's a bread like the size of this table. So it's not so practical. But really, really a person should hold both breads based on this Kamara, right? Ravashi said, he served Kahana dinakatarti. He held both of them, okay? Um, and, and, then, and then he only ate one of them. And again, the rationalization for that is that the don't be misled. This, this, this opinion of the Gemara is clear. Don't be misled to believe that you know, a person must cut both of them. Rather, hold both of them, only cut one of them. Okay, I'm going to confuse you now for a second. Is that okay? According to the Rashba, who we saw earlier, who said that the first opinion says you cut both of them. According to him, we actually have a debate in the Gemara. According to the Rashba, the first opinion says cut both of them. And the second opinion says, no, hold one, hold both, cut one. Right? According to Rashi, both opinions are actually saying the same thing. You with me? Yeah? Ish? Yeah, yeah. Lisa, question? Yeah, <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Good question. Yeah. So ultimately, what's going on over here, right? Meaning, we should really do this on Friday. 
right? That'd be great, right? All, you, all everyone needs right now is me to tell you that on Friday we should have a big, in addition to the Shabbos meals, we should all have a big Friday meal, right? Who here skips all their meals on Friday, right? Uh, so that, that, right? So, so the, good question. So yes, there, there's certainly, the Pasuk over here is speaking about um, Erev Shabbos. The fact that you have these extraneous words teach, the, lead our sages to say, at the very least, that this is something which is a totally separate, totally beyond what's being described over here. So yes, if it, you know, it, it, yes, uh, wh- okay, how do we translate it into Shabbos? So Shabbos is when we remind ourselves of this double falling. The double falling fell for Shabbos. Connect the dots, right? I mean, that, that's essentially the, the argument that's made. So let's quickly, quickly summarize over here. We have a uh, Pasuk. The Pasuk tells us, There is something extraneous. Double, there's, there's too many words that describe the doubling. It's clearly teaching us something extra. The Gemara tells us that there is something doubling when it comes to the bread of Shabbos. One way of reading the Gemara, not the classical way, is that there's a debate in the Gemara. One opinion says, cut both breads. Second opinion says, hold both breads. Cut one bread. The way Rashi learns it is that both opinions are actually saying, hold both breads, only cut one of them. And again, that is the normative practice. Okay? Now what we're going to do, let's go to source three. We're going to read a section from the Arach HaSholchan. The Arach HaSholchan, uh, Rav Chilmeir uh, Epstein, uh, is someone who lived about, a, you know, 100 plus years ago. Uh, he, he wrote a fabulous, fa- fascinating book called the Arach HaSholchan. It's quite a large set. So I don't even think we have one over here. We have one downstairs. Um, it essentially is, it, what, what he do, it's a halachic, halacha book. And uh, what it does is it takes, it doesn't just give you the bottom line. It does exactly what we're doing over here, but in even more detail. He'll start in the Psukim, he'll start in the Gemaras, and he'll develop and develop and develop until he gets to the final place. But it'll show you the whole development of halacha, all the way from the beginning, lining it down to the end. Um, and it is a very important work on halacha. One interesting thing about the author of the Arach HaSholchan, uh, what's probably the most famous classical book that was written on Jewish law in the past 100 years? Mish- okay, the Shulchan Arach is, it goes back to Rabbi Yosef Karo, that goes a few hundred years, but the Mishnah Brura written by the individual known as the Chafetz Chaim, that's probably the most well-used uh, and, and, and most commonly uh, incorporated uh, book of Jewish law. Now, it's interesting to note, uh, you know, academics and others point out, the Chafetz Chaim was not a rabbi of a community. The Chafetz Chaim was a scholar, okay? And so when he ruled on Jewish law, he was ruling primarily from books, from Svarim, right? Again, he received questions from everyone, but he wasn't, so to speak, on the ground, okay? He was in an ivory tower, Again, I don't mean this in a disrespectful way. He was very much connected. He was sought after for, for all matters of the Jewish people, but he was basically at the top, okay? And his law, the law that he relates is always going to be, yeah, he has all the different opinions and working his way through those different opinions. The Arach HaSholchan, Rabbi Epstein, in addition to being a tremendous scholar, was also a community rabbi, okay? He was, so to speak, on the ground. And so very often you'll find him lay out a halacha, then he'll say, and for some, you know, everyone's doing, this is the, the, you know, the Gemara seems to imply Y, but everyone's doing X. Now let me rationalize and justify why we're doing X. Okay? Uh, there is the principle that we believe that Yisrael Kedoshim Heim, the Jewish people are holy. If everyone has a practice, then we try to figure out where does this come from? Even if it doesn't match up with our books, with our tradition, we, we ask ourselves, there, is there a rationalization for this? So we have a very interesting deve- uh, you know, um, tradition within the halachic system where great scholars have tried very hard to rationalize and justify practices which don't seem to always be consistent with what you would see necessarily in the books. It's a fascinating uh, element to Jewish law, where it's not so much text-based, it's text 
mixed with real experience, real practice on the ground, and emerging of the both. That is one of the unique features and fascinating features of Rabbi Epstein. In, in this context, that's not going to be expressed, but uh, I just mentioned that just as an introduction to be- better appreciate who he is. So again, source three, let's begin. Garcinan Bishabis. So here he is uh, beginning the discussion of Lecha Mishnah, our topic, and he says it is brought down in Mesecha Shabbos. He quotes the Gemara that we just read. Amar Rav Abba. He, again, this is just a quote from the source above. Rav Abba says, B'Shabbos, on Shabbos, Chayv Adam Livtsoa, al Shteki Karos. On Shabbos, a person must, um, as we'll see, he reads like Rashi, a person must make the bracha on two loaves of bread. Dichsiv, as it says, Lechem Mishneh, a double bread. Kilomar. And now here is the Arach HaShulchan explaining what's going on. Kilomar, as if to say, B'Man Ksiv, this is all written about the man. Vayhiba Yom Hashishi, and it was on the sixth day, Laktu lecha mishnah, they gather double bread, shneha omer laechad, a double portion for each one. Vahach lecha mishnah miyutar. And as we pointed out earlier, these words lecha mishnah, they're extra. Dahavile lechsev, it should have said, laktu shneha omer laechad, that they gathered a double, two omers for each person. Right? The fact that it also says lechem mishnah, that's extra. Ve'einza elakethal dvarim, it is a doubling of the words. And therefore, our sages expounded, uh, you know, learned out from here, that this is something entirely distinct, separate. And this is what it means. That all the bread that we have at the meals of Shabbos, it should be double. Whenever we have a meal on Shabbos, the bread should be double. That's what we learn from the words, Lechem Mishnah. And he quotes now another early classical source from the Mechilta, um, okay, which says, Lechem Mishnah. What do we learn from the words Lechem Mishnah? Rabbi Yeshua Omer Lechem Kaful. It is a double bread. Ayin Sham, you should see there. Venira, and here are the key words that I wanted to emphasize. Shezeu Din Torah. Says Rabbi Epstein, it appears from here that this is a biblical law. Okay? This is not just a nice custom. According to his interpretation, this is a biblical mandate. You are obligated to have this double bread. We'll see why that's relevant in a moment. Velo asmachta be'alma, and not an asmachta. I'll define an asmachta in a moment. Debe'emes lechemishna miyuter ligamre, because the words lechemishna are completely, completely extraneous. So what is he saying over here? Let me explain the notion of an asmachta. Okay, familiar with that word? Anyone ever heard that word before? Okay, so what does asmachta mean? So there are two very different, there, there are, I'm going to share with you two very different approaches to understanding an asmachta. The rabbi, the our chazal, or sages, rabbis, oftentimes, you'll find in the Gemara will share an idea, okay? They'll tell you something like, I don't know, netilas uh, yadayim, before bread, okay? Is that a biblical law? No, okay? It's a rabbinic law. However, however, they will quote verses that support the idea of netilas yadayim. Now, when they're quoting verses, it's not to say that it's a biblical law, Okay, they'll acknowledge that. They'll say it is not a biblical law. It was Nitzkan, it was established by, I think, Shlomo HaMelech, right? It's, they're agreeing it's not a biblical law. But they quote a verse, they quote a Pasuk to support it. Why? What are they doing? So the Gemara calls that an asmachta. Really from the word like, uh, you know, it's associated with the word like, like, Hashem that it's a support. It's a support for this idea. But it's not biblical. Now, what does that mean? So the Rambam, the Rambam explains that what an asmachta means is that sometimes the rabbis will create an idea, develop an idea on their own, and they'll want there to be like some form of a mnemonic. 
So when you're studying in Chumash, you read this verse, and you're like, oh yeah, this is connected to Natila Sidaim. It almost like triggers the memory. It's a mnemonic. It doesn't have anything to do with that verse per se. It's just that that verse will trigger that memory. And so that verse is kind of like a connection, a hook to, to kind of uh, trigger the memory of the rabbinic law. There's no intrinsic connection between that verse and the law itself. That's a simple way of understanding an asmachta. And that's how the Rambam Maimonides understands the notion of asmachta. You have rabbinic laws, and there are verses which kind of help us. And the rabbis went after they legislated. They said, hey, let's find some place that when, you know, there's a, you know, someone's talking in shul, they're reading the parsha, they say, ah, oh, it's a dime, it goes back to this pasuk. Cool, great. Oh, yes, Karen. Okay. Well, that wouldn't be called good. So, in a juxtaposition, is not an asmachta. A juxtaposition is one of the tools. Okay, there are two. Let's 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 take a step back for a second. There are place. There are things which are explicit in the Torah. It says, I don't know, um, keep Shabbos. I don't know something explicit. Whatever it is, right? They're totally explicit. And then there are other things which are learned by juxtaposition or by two similar identical words being found in one section, found in the other. That, although it's not, we wouldn't call that. You and I wouldn't call it explicit, since that those are tools. That are, that are to the point that the, using those tools, when the rabbis say we're using a hekish, which is a juxtaposition, um, or xer shava, two identical words, that is actually considered biblical. Okay? That is actually considered biblical. Here we're talking about something beyond that. Here it's not that it's two things juxtaposed. The rabbis saying this is not biblical at all. But we're saying dixiv as it's written, and they quote a verse to support it. Debbie, you want to ask something? I just wanted to clarify for myself. So it is not really like the rabbis worked, uh, came to a rabbinic law and then brought Torah to support it. It's really just more like a memory tool. In some respects. In some respects. Yes, that, that seems to be, and I hope I'm not misspeaking, but it seems to be how the Rambam understands it. Some form of a mnemonic. The Maharal in Ber Hagola, which is a fascinating book where he explains all of rabbinic uh, legislation, how it works, how the rabbis relate to the Torah itself, what is the whole notion of, of rabbinic law and its development. There he explains asmachta in a radically different way. He suggests that whenever they, they call something an asmachta and they say that it's based on this verse, he understands that that verse is, relate, is, is conveying a certain idea, a certain concept. It's teaching us a certain concept. I'm, I'm not going to do justice to it because we're not going to go through an example right now. I think it'll take us too off course. But basically, you find sometimes the Torah, it shares an idea, a value. Not legislation. That's not you have to do something. But it shares a certain value. And the rabbis understood that value. And therefore, said, based on that value that the Torah is teaching, we are going to express that with some rabbinic legislation. Right? Very different. To them, it's not just a, a, a tip, a tool, a way, a hint. But rather, there is something intrinsic in the text which is alluding to, which is basically almost telling us to do X, Y, or Z, but it's not a directive. The Chazal came along, or sages came along and said, well, since the Torah is telling us this is a value, there's something valuable over here, we are going to formalize that, we are going to create that, uh, form that into some form of a law, and that's, when, that's what the term asmachta actually means. Okay? The bottom line is, the bo- so that's background information. The bottom line is when something is asmachta, it is rabbinic. When something is, the Aruch HaShulchan over here, Rabbi Epstein, is arguing, this is not rabbinic. Lecha Mishnah, according to him, is biblical. It is a, it is a mitzvah de araisa, or it is something that we are obligated to do biblically to have that double bread at all of our meals. Okay? Are we careful about that? I don't know. Well, now maybe we should be a little bit more careful. It's worth noting that there are some who understand that it is not rabbinical. It's actually rabbinic. Now, this is all academic. 
Why does it make a difference, right? At the end of the day, if it's rabbinic law, right? Guess what, people? Muktzah is rabbinic, okay? Uh, and yet, right? Muktzah is, you know, that's when we, my kids, whenever they, you know, anything that's uh, forbidden on Shabbos, what do they say? It's muktzah. I'm like, no, it's not muktzah. It's biblical, but whatever, they're kids. So the point is that muktzah is rabbinic law, and yet, of course, we do. We keep the rabbi's laws, right? So why does it matter if it's biblical or rabbinic? I'll give you one example, but we can come up with many more. Here's a, here's a, perhaps somewhat of a, uh, an example. We're all studying the laws of Lechem Mishnah now. We're all much more cognizant and going to be sensitive to the idea that to make hamotzi has, has to be done over two pieces of bread. Let's say you went to a, uh, a big event, okay? And at this event, each person, as you typically see on a big event on Shabbos, each person has one role, right? So based on what we're learning over here, what should you do? Let's pretend no one's making hamotzi for everyone else. You, t- you take the other person's role, you make, this is before COVID, when you're allowed to touch other people's food, okay, and basically you go ahead and you make hamotzi, and then, you know, and, and then you did lechem mishnah, okay? Let's say you're at this wedding, okay, this takes place, you know, next Shabbos, you're at some, some simcha, and you, you're, you finish the meal, you're like, wait a second, maybe I just said hamotzi on my piece of bread, did I do lechem mishnah, right? So, if it's biblical, then what do you have to do? Do it again. But there's a principle, whenever we are in doubt about our fulfillment of a biblical law, safik de oraisa lechumra. We are obligated to be stringent. If we're unsure about something which we're biblically mandated to do, we have to be cautious because it's biblical, and therefore we'd actually be obligated to go ahead and wash, make a motzi on two pieces of bread to, in order to fulfill lechem mishnah. If it's, if it's rabbinic, if it's rabbinic, then we have a principle, safik de rabbanan lekula, that if we're in doubt about a rabbinic principle, then we're allowed to be lenient. And we say, if I'm not sure, I don't have to go back again. Okay, that'd be one of perhaps other uh, applications of whether or not it's biblical or rabbinic. Okay, yes? Great question. So, so let's talk about Shalashudas briefly because we're going to get into it right now. Shalashudas or Sudachlishi or whatever you want to call it, okay? So the third meal, right? There is, an op- so the, there is a Pasuk. So pause. Any, any qu- before we get to that, any questions on what we studied so far? No? Okay, good. So um, Shalashudas. So there is, we, uh, I, I think people are pretty careful about a Friday night meal. People are fairly, uh, you know, careful about having a Shabbos day meal. Third meal, eh. You know, people are not as careful necessarily. The Gemara, the, Torah, the Gemara tells us that we are obligated to go ahead and have three meals, okay? It, it's learned from, also from the man, which is interesting. We're going to come back to that in a moment. In the context of the man, when it describes the man, it actually, there's a pasuk that describes the food that they eat, and it uses the word hayom today three times in the verse, okay? This tips off our sages to say there's an obligation to have Three meals. It's a pasuk that talks about eating on Shabbos, and it says Hayom, Hayom, Hayom. So you have to eat three meals on Shabbos. Okay. Now, uh, there, there's so there seems to be an obligation to eat three meals. It's worth noting. It's not really our topic right now, but it's worth noting that our sages understood, especially as we're about to change the clock, that sometimes it gets to you know you just finished lunch at I don't know one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock, whatever, and you just had this huge meal which is way overboard. You didn't need to have this much food, and you did, and now it's like an hour later, and it's almost getting dark, and you're not hungry. Right? Um, so you just don't want to eat, right? So with Shalashudis, we do have some flexibility. We're not going to get into the why right now about there are like, there's, there's levels. Ideally, a person should have a full, like a, a meal. They should wash over two loaves of bread at, for the third meal. Okay? If that's too much, a person is just simply too full, you should have some Mizonos items, meaning like cake, crackers, or things of that nature. If that's too much, you could have fruit. Okay? So that's your background for Shalashudas. We're going to get into Shalashudas right now. So again, yeah, I'm not sure if I'm, I'm not really addressing your question, but, but the, the, the question ultimately, 
when you have shalashudas, you, you do have much more flexibility about not having bread, and therefore, similarly, there'd be flexibility about not having lecha mishnah. However, ideally, ideally, we should strive to have lecha mishnah even at shalashudas. So let's talk about shalashudas. Let's talk about a woman's obligation in Lecha Mishnah, actually, for a moment, okay? So we all know, and this is, we're not going to have time to do justice to this, we all know that according to Jewish law, there are differences in terms of obligations. There are things that women are obligated to do and that men are not obligated to do. There are things, and the most famous principle where men are, there's a general principle, that men have certain obligations that women do not. What, is, what realm is that? Time-bound mitzvahs. That's right, okay? So I'm sure we've, we've uh, in different contexts, there's been discussions about why and, and how that's about, whatever. We're going to hold off on the why right now, but there's a general principle that anything that relates to a particular time, women are not obligated to do, okay? That is the one principle we have to keep in the back of our mind, okay? There are notable exceptions, okay? And each one of those exceptions has a rule, has a principle, has a reason why. So over here, let's look at source number, um, source number six, Okay, this is the Mordechai, one of the early, uh, one of the one of the later medieval sages. Okay, so turn the page, source number six, says uh, the Mordechai. Uh, he quotes a dialogue, a question that was posed to Rabbeinu Tam. Rabbeinu Tam was really one of the most important uh, for many of you, or I think many of the people in this room are Ashkenazim. Uh, Rabbeinu Tam was probably the most influential person when it comes to Ashkenazic practice. We don't throw his name around too much, uh, but it's important to note that he was really the, the leader of Ashkenazic Jewry. Uh, the reason we call ourselves Ashkenaz, what does Ashkenaz mean? It translates as Germany, right? How many of you used to claim to, to be considered German? Maybe a few of you, most of you. There you go. Okay, but the rest of us are Polish, Hungarian, uh, Russian, whatever. But we consider ourselves to be Ashkenaz. Why? Because the customs really developed around Rabbeinu Tam and his, and his disciples in Germany. And those customs kind of spread out through Eastern Europe. Okay, fine. So Rabbeinu Tam was asked the following question. Source number six. Let's skip the heading. Shafein Hayub Osonis, where Rashi's script begins. Nishal la Rabbeinu Tam. The following question was posed to Rabbeinu Tam. Imnashim chayavos bishalosh seudos bishabbos. Whether women are obligated in the, thir- the three meals on Shabbos. In other words, right, again, this goes back, so many, you know, uh, you know we don't have shalashis right now in our shul, but when we did, um, then it would skew quite heavily towards the men, right? And, and, you know, so the question was, are women also obligated in that third Meal. That's the question that's being posed to Rabbeinu Tam. Veheshiv, and he responded, Devada chayavos. They are certainly obligated. Why? Sha'af hein hayu biridas haman. Because they also experienced the miracle of the falling of the man. Vayidei kach niskan shalosh sudos b'shavis. And the three meals were instituted as a reflection of the falling of the man. As I said a moment ago, the reason we have three meals is because in the context of the man, there is this allusion to three meals. And so Rabbeinu Tam has asked, are women obligated in the mitzvah of, of Shalashudas? Now, Sudat Shlishi, Shalashudas, is a time-bound mitzvah, right? You cannot have Shalashudas. You cannot. Um, I remember I had some friends when I was in yeshiva who would wake up really, really early on Shabbos morning. They would down in the earliest minion, and then they would go ahead and they'd wash, they'd have a meal, then they'd bench, then they'd wash, they'd have a meal, and then they'd sleep for like 12 hours until the end of Shabbos, okay? Guess what? It doesn't work. You can't do that, okay? The third meal actually has to take place from uh, whatever around mid, uh, the second part of the day, okay? Without getting into the technicalities, it is a time-bound mitzvah. There is a particular time. You can't say, well, Friday night, I'm going to have three meals. That way I could literally just sleep in all of Shabbos, wake up Sunday morning. Cool. No, you cannot do that, right? It is a time-bound mitzvah. That's the premise of the question. Well, are women obligated? And his answer is yes, because, and he invokes, it's, he doesn't say these words explicitly, but the principle is something called af hein hayu 
ba'oso hanes. That since they experienced that miracle, they're also obligated in that mitzvah, even though it's time-bound. Where else do we have this application? Hanukkah, right? So women are obligated to light the menorah. Why? That's a time-bound mitzvah. Says the Gemara, Afhein hayu Women were part of the miracle. They were saved. They were leaders in the miracle, right? And therefore, they also have to fulfill the mitzvah of Hanukkah. Where else? Purim. Not Kiddush. We'll come back to Kiddush in a moment. But, but no, Kiddush, it's not invoked for Kiddush. We'll see why in a moment. But it is invoked for Purim. Okay, so Megillah reading, you have a mitzvah to listen to the Megillah at night and mitzvah in the day. That's time bound. Why do women come to listen to the, Why are women obligated to come to the Megillah? The answer is because af hain hayub osones. Even though it's time bound, we have this overriding principle that if they experience the miracle, they're obligated to partake in it and therefore they are also obligated in this mitzvah. Okay? Is that okay? So, so that's Rabbeinu Tom's answer that the reason women are obligated to have three meals is because they experienced the miracle. However, let's go to source number seven for a second. Okay, this is the Ran Rabbeinu Nisim of Garonda, uh, one of the medieval commentators. He quotes Rabbeinu Tam, but as we'll see, he takes issue with it. He says like this, Vikasov Rabbeinu Tam Zal. He says, Rabbeinu Tam wrote, Dinashim chayavos b'shalosh seudos, that women are obligated in the three meals, v'cheinami, and also, and here's how it's relevant to us, livtsoa al shteki karos, to make the bracha on two loaves of bread, meaning women are obligated in what we call lechem mishnah, the double bread. Why? Sha'af hain hayu b'neis haman. Since they were part of the miracle of the man, right? So again, Rabbeinu Tam says that the reason not only shalashudis, but also lechem mishnah, why? Because both those mitzvahs revolve around the man, and women experience the miracle of the man, and therefore they are obligated just the same. The ain't Sarah, Rabbeinu Tam says, there is no need for this. He says, I don't know why he came up with this idea. He says there's a more basic, more fundamental reason why women should be obligated in Lecha Mishnah. And, uh, and let, let's, let's stick to Lecha Mishnah for a second. Why? Everything as it relates to Shabbos, Ish ve'isha shavin. Both men and women are equal. So there's an interesting, right? We said in general, women are obligated in time-bound, are not obligated in time-bound mitzvos. But as the Ran is pointing out, that when it comes to Shabbos, that principle doesn't exist. Kiri Alfina, the Gemara and Brachos, that's the last line over there, Mizachar Vishamar. Right? We know that there, were two, two, there are two places in the Chumash, one in Shemos and one in Devarim, where it talks about, where it describes the Ten Commandments, the Sarsa Dibros. And in one place, it says, Shamar es Yom HaShabbos, you should observe or you should safeguard Shabbos, okay? which our sages understand to be in reference to the negative prohibitions. And in another place it says, Zachar es Yom HaShabbos. You're obligated to observe a positive fulfillment of Shabbos. Okay? And so in the context of the Ten Commandments, of the Sarasa Dibros, it speaks about both the positive mitzvos and the negative prohibitions. Yes? That would include Good. Excellent. Right? So says, so, so the Gemara says, excellent, we'll come to Kiddush in a split second. So the Gemara says that when, so let me take a step back. One more principle then to appreciate this. Is there, any accept, is there any distinction in negative? Pro- this principle of time-bound mitzvos is only true for positive mitzvos. It does not apply to negative prohibitions. Both men and women are equal, equally prohibited in negative mitzvos. Got that? That's basic principle. Now, the Gemara says, since you have the term, remember, which is the positive, and you have shamar, which speaks to the negative, regarding Shabbos, the Gemara introduces a principle. that kol sheyeshna, as sheyeshno b'shmira, whoever is obligated in the prohibitions of Shabbos, Yeshno Bizchira is obligated in the positive mitzvos of Shabbos. So Shabbos is an exception, although in general we have the concept that women are only obligated in mitzvos that are not time-bound. 
But when it comes to Shabbos, since the two are juxtaposed, and since we know that women are obligated in the prohibitions of Shabbos, they are also obligated in the positive mitzvahs of Shabbos, like, as Shelley pointed out, Kiddush, right? Women are ob- Kiddush is also time-bound. Why are women obligated in Kiddush? Because the fact that since uh, on Shabbos there's this exception that all mitzvos of Shabbos, even if they're time bound, women are obligated in, and therefore says the Ran. Let's finish the let's finish the last words over here. And therefore, and therefore, since that is the case, women should be obligated in all the obligations of Shabbos. And therefore, he says, why does Rabbeinu Tam? Okay, and then we're getting a little we're going to go a little bit deeper for a second. Bear with me. Okay, hold on tight. So he's saying like this: Why is Rabbeinu Tam coming on to this principle of whoever they, that they participated in the miracle? There's a much more fundamental, basic idea. Since women are obligated in all the mitzvahs I say, all the positive mitzvahs of Shabbos, they're obligated in Lacha Mishnah. They're obligated in Shal Shudas. That's why. Why does he have to come on and bring in this principle of whoever partook in the miracle is going to be included? And therefore he says, they're inclu- of course they're obligated in Shal Shudas. Of course they're obligated in, um, in Lacha Mishnah because of this principle that women are obligated in things like Kiddush on Shabbos. So to Lacha Mishnah. So to Shal Shudas. Yes. So when you say obligated, uh, is that, I mean, the way we practice it, it's sort of like hearing Kiddush and participating in uh, Hamotzi. Mm-hmm. Is that, but that's not what, I thought we were equal. So does that mean women need to make Kiddush? Good, good, good question. So let's just briefly explain why we make, why the, the, this could take us in a bunch of directions, but ba- simply put, um, the same would be true if there was a group of if, if there was a group of five men or two men. One man would make the bracha for the other, and they would fulfill their obligation. We have a general principle of shomea keona, where someone who hears those words is as if they said them themselves. And so that's going to be true for both men and women. So hearing someone else say hamotzi or hearing someone else say kiddush, it's as if you yourself said it. Now with lechemish, it's a little tricky, and we'll get to that in a moment because. Uh, there, it's more than just words. There's the two breads, and not everyone's holding on to those two breads. We're going to get to that in, in just a moment. But let's go back to this, uh, this debate over here. And again, this is getting us a little bit, a little bit more complex, and we'll come back to something, uh, we'll move ourselves back up for a second. There's a debate over here. Rabbeinu Tam is saying that the reason that women are obligated is because they were partook, partook in, the, in, the, in, the, in the miracle. That's why they're obligated. The Ran is saying, no, it's because all mitzvos, all positive mitzvos, women partake on Shabbos, and therefore this, this too. Could we conjecture what is at the roots of their debates? Any thoughts? Well, whether a woman could say for a man is, might be one of the Okay, possibly. Good, possibly. That, that might be possibly. But let's go to the roots, right? That would be an application. Let's go, yeah, and, and, and some debate based on these two answers, whether or not that would be true. Excellent. But let's think about the roots, where they're coming from in this, with this. Yes, yeah. Okay, one way of perhaps, one way of looking, excellent, one way of looking at this would say that, no, that, that Lecha Mishnah, the, the, all this bread stuff is somewhat separate. Okay, that would be one way. Then, and therefore, that might explain where Rabbeinu Tam is coming from. Yes, take one. Everyone needs Okay, so you're saying if everyone has to partake in the miracle, would they all have to be partaking in it? Good, good. So let me, let me share one, po- excellent. So let me share one, one possible conjecture that, that might be driving these two opinions. I mentioned a moment ago that the Arach HaSholchan, we saw source number three, I think it was, who said that this mitzvah is biblical, right? And I pointed out, not everyone agrees with him. Some understand that Lecha Mishnah is rabbinic. So let's, let's think this through for a second. If Lecha Mishnah is the Orisa, is biblical, then I understand the Ran. The Ran is saying that all the mitzvahs, just like Kiddush, which is biblical, 
women are obligated in, so too Lechem Mishnah. But it might be the Rabbeinu Tam holds that Lechem Mishnah is not biblical. And therefore, he couldn't use that principle of just like Kiddush, so too Lechem Mishnah. Along the lines of what you're saying, Yael. Not because it's a, separate, it's a separate category, because it's rabbinic. And therefore, he has to develop, he has to suggest a new reason, the concept of whoever partook in that miracle, which, hope this doesn't confuse anyone, but you'll notice parenthetically, that principle is only invoked in rabbinic laws. Okay, it's never invoked in a biblical law. Right, we mentioned Hanukkah is when it's invoked, Purim is when it's invoked, and it seems like Rabbeinu Tam understands that Lechem Mishnah is rabbinic, and that's why he invokes it. He does not say it's like Kiddush, because it's not like Kiddush. It's not biblical according to him, and therefore he has to bring in a rabbinic principle of whoever partook in that miracle. Okay? That's academic. It's interesting. I think it's fascinating. Uh, but let's, let's move back to some more practical halachos. So we see, though, there is an interesting debate about whether it's rabbinic or biblical. We saw some ramifications might be if you're at a simcha, you're at some place, you're not sure if you met, went. Everyone agrees you're obligated in Lecha Mishnah, and both opinions are agreeing that women are obligated in Lecha Mishnah. Okay? whether rabbinically or biblically, but it might be whether the mitzvah is rabbinic or biblical. Everyone agrees you're obligated. There might be a difference if I forget or I'm not sure if I did Lecha Mishnah. If it's biblical, I have to go back. If it's rabbinic, I do not. Let's now go a little bit further, and, and this is something a couple of you touched upon, and that is the obligation. How do we all partake in Lecha Mishnah? Most people, most houses, I'm, I'm going to, in my house, one person makes a mozi on two pieces of bread, and everyone has bread, right? Is my saying the hamotzi on the two pieces of bread, how does that impact you, right? If you're, we're all eating together in my house and I'm going to make the hamotzi, you're not eating lecha mishnah. You're eating a piece of bread, a slice. How do you involve yourself in my lecha mishnah? That's going to be the next question we're going to address, okay? So let's see here. We have a quote from the Shulchan Aruch, source number eight. Oh boy, we're running low on time. I really want to get to our Rosenorf Chalas. We'll see if we do. Okay. <laughs> says uh, says uh, the Shulchan Aruch, source number eight. V'im hu Shabbos, if it is Shabbos, if it's Shabbos, then all the participants need to have their own double bread, meaning two loaves of bread, in addition to what the person making the bracha has in front of him. That's how he lays it out, okay? So for all of you who make challah by challah, okay, I'm going to give a lot of business to Rosendorf and all the other bakeries over here. Every person, according to Shulchan Aruch, should have their own challah. Okay, and therefore one person makes the bracha and everyone then has their own lecha mishnah in front of them. Totally fine. One more person makes the blessing on behalf of everyone else, but everyone has their two double breads which they hold and then you eat one. That would be the simplest, but not necessarily the most economic uh, approach, right? Everyone has their own double breads in front of them. Okay, uh, fine. However, let's look at the, 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 the next lines under it. This is a quote from the Mishnah Brewer, again, written by the Chafetz Chaim, and that's it, where you see the letters Pei Gimel. This is the, the commentary of the Mishnah Brewer. He says, If each person does not have double bread, then they have to rely upon the one making the bracha who has the double bread, and they have to eat from that bread, right? The way that, so in, for most of us who don't all have double bread in front of all of us, how do we involve ourselves in the Lecha Mishnah of the one making the blessing of the bracha? What we do is that that person makes the bracha and then if we eat from that bread, that connects us to that Lecha Mishnah. That's how we are connected to the Lecha Mishnah. And you're not allowed to make to eat until you have from that bread, which I think is Normative practice, right? Normative practice is that we all eat from that bread and you're not allowed to eat until you eat from that bread. And that way you demonstrate that your hamotzi, that your eating is really connected to that original bread, 
Right? You cannot say, right? One could argue, wait, wait a second. Lechem Mishim means I need a double portion of bread at my meal. So, uh, uh, you know, if someone make a motzi, I'll eat my own bread, and then I'll have from the Lechem Mishnah. No. It goes back to the begin. The beginning of the meal has to revolve around that Lechem Mishnah, and therefore, one person makes the, br- the bracha on the two breads, and everyone has to have a piece of that bread. Okay? This is sometimes easy, sometimes a little complicated. Yes, Debbie? So, Good. So is, Good. I'm going to get to that in a moment. Good. We're going to get to that in a moment. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll get to that in a moment. Kodem Lo, yes, that, that is an additional point, right? And we're, which we're not going to unpack right now. Yes, yes. Yeah, I was pointing out that, that in addition to that, that you have to go ahead and this per, the person who makes the bracha should be the first one to eat. And that's why, although it's a little rude sometimes, uh, but the person making the bracha is that you're supposed to actually take their own piece first right away and then other people do so afterwards. We're not going to get into to that uh, right now in terms of why that's absolutely necessary and someone else can't eat. But yes, that is absolutely correct. So let's talk about someone who's celiac and then let's talk about uh, another possible uh, uh, scenario. So, I had someone who was a regular guest at our Shabbos meal who could not eat, you know, could not eat the bread that we ate. So one simple thing, if you had a small setting and they have their own, they had, they had, they brought their own rolls. Okay. We had a stash of their rolls in our freezer. So the simplest thing to do, we're going to talk about making a, a hamotzi on a frozen roll in the future. Uh, but, uh, but cause it's not so edible, right? But we'll get, we'll get back to that. But right now it was, it was defrosted, right? So basically what I did is I took my full of wheat, really unhealthy bread and held it, right? And held it together with their bread. I said hamotzi on both those breads. I gave them their bread. They ate it. And we all ate the other stuff. That's the simplest thing you could do. Okay? That's very nice if you were planful and you had that bread. Let's say you don't. Right? Or let's say you don't, simply don't have those rolls. Or yes? All the five grams, you cannot have a motzi, right? So what do you do in those cases, right? So, so there, is, there are two opinions. There are some who say, you simply cannot fulfill Lechem Mishnah in such a case. It's just, it's impossible. Which, which by the way, is, is meaning it, it's like someone who, uh, you know, doesn't have, the, it's what we call an onus. Someone who is incapable of doing certain mitzvot, you're not obligated to doing the mitzvah, right? If you're unwell, you're not feeling well, and, and to go into the sukkah would, would throw off your health, you're not obligated. And similarly, there are those who say you are exempt, done. There are others who say, that bidi eved, meaning post facto, or in, in this type of scenario, you would be allowed to fulfill your obligation simply by listening to the individual making the bracha on that bread. Okay? And therefore, that, that could be relied upon, meaning in a scenario where a person doesn't have their own two loaves or they can't eat any grain, then simply what they should do, they shouldn't say, meaning there'd be two ways to do this. One say, well, I can't do Lechem Mishnah, forget it. Alternatively, what they could do is say, no, I'm going to come to the meal, or I'm going to come, I'm going to listen to someone else make the bracha, eat over two loaves of bread. They're going to eat the bread, and I fulfill my obligation simply by being there and part of that experience. It's a little bit of a novel idea, because normally, normally when it comes to an action, I have to partake in the act. Right? I, I, you, if you listen to me say a blessing, a bracha, then your listening is as if you said it. Okay, that's a principle. But we, we don't typically say that, you know, if I put on, you know, if I, if I do, if I shake little Vanessa and you watched me do so, that's very nice, you know, but that's not your mitzvah. You got to shake yourself, right? So it is a novel idea, but there is this, there are those who argue that, no, simply put that if I make the bracha, if I'm going to go ahead and, and make, I listen to someone else making a motzi, I could fulfill my obligation in that case. So again, someone who cannot have bread should make sure someone, you know, sometimes this comes up, someone who's in a hospital, right? They're on IV, whatever it is, they can't eat at all. So, you know, they'll go out of the way to hear Kiddush, if possible, they should also hear someone go ahead and make a motzi, according to this reasoning, because according to some, you actually fulfill your obligation in this fashion. Yes? Can that person bench then? If they didn't have a motzi, they shouldn't bench. No, 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 no. Good question. Yeah, no, absolutely not. No. Yes, Debbie. Okay, so what if you have, so 
you're, you said, take the challah and the alternative roll and use them as lecha mishnah. Mm -hmm. What if you have a variety of allergies around the table, so you've got different kinds of alternative rolls? Mm -hmm. Good question. So you could really, should really, great question. You could really hold them all together, okay? You're not limited to two. Some actually, um, if anyone's uh, Rabbi Goldberger, as uh, this is the Kabbalistic approach, I think they take 12 loaves of bread, okay? Um, and they, they, they do small ones, so it's not like there's like excess bread, okay? But basically, yeah, so you could hold up more loaves of bread and that way incorporate all those people in Lecha Mishnah. But it'd be important to note, again, if I make Hamotzi on my Lecha Mishnah, this is, this is probably one important practical point. You're at a Simcha, you're at a place where there's a lot of people, right? You should really wait, ideally, you should get a piece of that bread, Right, uh, you know, people are very careful about this with kiddush. With kiddush, it's not the same obligation. You really don't. You don't. You don't. I wouldn't sweat. I wouldn't spend any extra time getting kiddush from the person who made kiddush. Okay, you don't even have to drink the kiddush to fulfill your obligation of kiddush. But certainly, if you have your own grape juice in front of you, you could drink it. Okay, if you have a lot of guests and you want to save time, fill up a little bit of grape juice. It's fine. It's totally fine. With lecha mishnah, there's an obligation to partake in that bread. Okay, specifically in that bread. And therefore, again, if you have a lot of guests, you can't say, well, I'm going to make the, bra- the bracha on the Lecha Mishnah, and then each person will be able to go ahead and, and do so. No, that, that, that doesn't work. Okay? Um, you, or, sorry, I should say better. Ideally, really, we're striving for making sure that every person has a piece of that bread, which could get very hard sometimes if you set, you know, at a, at a, at a you know, at a Shevo um, Brachos or whatever, many, many people, if, if you're the host, you probably want to make sure that everyone has the ability to make their own Lecha Mishnah because it's almost impossible for each person to partake in that one loaf of bread that the person cut at the top of the table, right? Okay, so let's just, let's just quickly review uh, practically what we saw so far today. We, we see Lecha Mishnah is a mitzvah. Is it a rabbinic mitzvah, a biblical mitzvah? That is a matter of debate. It has ramifications if you forgot if you made Lecha Mishnah. If it's biblical and you're not sure if you forgot, you have to go back and do so again. If it's rabbinic, you don't have to. We saw that everyone agreed that women are obligated like men we based and we saw a rational two rationalizations as to why and that probably revolves around whether we believe Lecha Mishnah in general is rabbinic or is biblical so women are also obligated in Lecha Mishnah that means right we all have to go ahead and make sure we have this double bread the last thing we spoke about is how do we all partake in the Lecha Mishnah if we don't all have our own double bread so the best way to do so is if we take from the bread of the person making the bracha which again I think is pretty normative if it's impossible then there's what to rely upon to fulfill our obligation simply by listening and it also creates a certain stringency even if it's impossible for you to eat if you're in a scenario where you cannot eat you should go out of your way to listen to someone else make that bracha in order to fulfill your obligation I want to respect everyone's time so we're going to conclude our, we'll talk about Roosevelt College God willing, next week. Have a beautiful week. Good to see you all. Have a fabulous day. All the best.